Welcome to Elevate, the podcast where we dissect exceptional achievers who are consistently raising the bar personally and professionally to produce extraordinary results in investment real estate and ultimately in their lives. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chester. I'm so thankful to have you here, and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting here with David McIlvaney. David, how are you? I'm doing well. Great to be with you, Tyler. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I know today is going to be a phenomenal discussion because from what I understand about David, he is a deep thinker and very multidisciplinary, so we're going to be getting into a lot of different things here today, and I'm excited about that because I think to be successful in this type of environment, you've got to be multidisciplinary. You've got to be understanding the complexities of our economic environment. You've got to understand the complexities of your own psychology of others who are acting in this environment. And we're going to go pretty wide ranging today, but uh, really looking forward to that. And um, you know, with that said, I want to welcome Elevate Nation back because it's absolutely time to take it to another level. And that's what we're going to do today. You know, Our mission is to identify and apply how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in their own lives, whether it's real estate, whether it's, you know, building their own business or whether they're leaving their own legacy, you know, for their own family and their own, you know, generational planning uh, down the line. And we're going to talk about a lot of that today. Uh, but this is a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results through purposeful uh, real estate investing. And really at the end of the day, it's about purposeful outcomes in their lives and towards creating systems, you know, vehicle, real estate is a vehicle towards creating what you want. And there's so many different businesses out there towards creating vehicles towards what you want in your life. And if you appreciate what we're doing, we'd certainly be grateful if you subscribe to the show, if you give us a rating and review, it helps us uh, to reach the, the message to millions of people because we believe that you have the ability to live a life of fulfillment. And it's through committing to your own personal growth. It's through committing to building systems that are vehicles towards creating outcomes in your life. And so with that long-winded introduction, let me introduce you to David McIlvaney, who is the CEO of McIlvaney Financial Companies, International Collectors Associates, and McIlvaney Wealth Management. He's a featured speaker on national television programs, including CNBC, Fox News, Fox Business, uh, News, and Bloomberg on radio programs and at financial seminars around the world analyzing major events and their impact on the global economy and financial markets. He can be heard on his weekly market commentary with world leaders, bankers, economists, and renowned investors at McIlvaneyCommentary.com. So David, with that said, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit more about yourself behind the bio. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think um, there's, there's always more behind the bio in terms of personal interests and, and kind of the path that we're on. And I definitely resonate with um, what you're trying to do with personal and professional growth. Um, they're, they're not separate. Uh, one, I think, feeds the other, who you are and what you're developing in terms of your interior life um, certainly gets played out into your professional life. And that's for better or for worse. So. Um, we tend to look at, um, you know, what we're doing as a, as a, as a company, um, you know, as, as sort of an integrated whole. We encourage our, our and, and, uh, and partners to continue to read and to learn and to be curious um, and to push their personal boundaries in, in terms of what they're capable of, recognizing that there is more than they can, that they can become, whether that's intellectual maturity or um, the spiritual maturity or emotional maturity, 
um, or professional maturity where, where you are becoming the best in your particular field. And that doesn't happen by accident. It's a deliberate um, set of choices that you put in motion. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we do as, as a family to kind of put that in motion, even for, you know, a 10-year-old, a five-year-old, a teenager, to sort of begin to pattern that early on. And outside of the bio, um, the things that I'm most interested in are relationships. And that's where I spend all my time. I'm either at the office or I'm at home. And I don't have a lot else going on. Uh, I mean, there's lots of interest between you know, skiing and triathlons and uh, various um, diversions. But even those, we try to it, it, yeah, include the whole family in. Yeah. And you, you just strike me as an individual who is so intellectually curious and you share that with everyone that you come in contact with, whether that's your family, your colleagues, or other people that you're serving. And I just really admire that about you. So can you tell me a little bit about what is it that you're so deeply curious about? I mean, are you just so curious to know everything there is to know? And, and you're, maybe you're like me where the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Tyler, I think that last comment is is really at the heart of it because I'm surprised. I'm constantly surprised um, how much I don't know. And, you know, the more you learn, you think, I can't believe I operated on certain assumptions or without this particular data set. And so there is certainly a hunger to figure things out. And being in the professional money management business, um, what you don't know can hurt you. And so really trying to figure out how to mitigate risk and find opportunity, those two things are certainly a part of it. Um, curiosity is, is one of those things that if you harness it, it ends up being um, an amazing energizer for education and learning. Um, you know, people have often asked me, you know, what five books should I read or, or, or you know, something like that. And, and I'd say, well, what are you interested in? Um, because really, you should be diving into and solving a particular problem that is on your mind, that is in your heart, that is in your um, sphere of interest. And, and on that basis, one question leads to another and to another and to another. What I find, if you look through my library, you'll find in the book and 20 books that are circled. And that's my next order at Amazon or from a local bookseller. Um, and one book leads to 10, 10 leads to another 10. And, and it's just, that's the way questions feed. You'll never have energy to learn if you're not feeding your own personal curiosity. Again, it's, it's kind of, it, don't, don't chase someone else's dreams. Um, don't say, chase someone else's questions. Where you're curious, that's where you should invest the most. John Templeton, Sir John Templeton, who ran the Templeton funds before he sold them to Franklin for you know, half a billion dollars or something, and then moved to the, uh, the Bahamas, um, as one of his top recommendations um, in terms of where to invest, uh, it was in yourself. And that, uh, from a holistic standpoint, is certainly um, inclusive of the mind. And, and again, answering questions and continue to learn and grow. Um, but it's also many people, as we've dealt with, tens of thousands of clients around the country, what we've found is our clients reach a certain age and because they haven't tended to their health, all of a sudden they discover that it doesn't matter how much wealth they have, they'll spend it all just to recover some part of it. So, you know, as, as we look at life, you know, we're, we're given a set of resources and how we manage those resources is really critical. So if, of an accountant where you say, okay, what are my assets and what are my liabilities? 
Um, I think this is a part of what we do as we figure out what our whole life trajectory is. What are we working with? And, and what do we need to add to that? Um, so yeah, I think curiosity is, is uh, gosh, I, I do love to learn. But, it, it, you know, I love conversations like this. I, I love to engage with, with people um, because we're all in the same boat. We're trying to figure out who we are, um, how we fit into this universe, um, what our purpose is, how we can make an impact, um, how we can love better, how we can live more skillfully. Um, so yeah, as you described real estate, real estate is a vehicle. What is it a vehicle towards? Where is it taking you? Um, it's not the end in itself. It's not the end in itself. It's just one useful tool. Yeah. And when I think about being a successful investor, you know, I think about endless learning being critical because of the fact that we're looking at, you know, so many different complexities in our landscape that number one, seem to be unprecedented in so many different ways, but number two, you know, seem to be evolving so rapidly. And so to me, it seems like curiosity has got to be the central figure towards operating and acting effectively. So I'd love to know, you know, how do you look at this landscape and make any sense of it? How do you make appropriate decisions in such a rapidly changing environment? And I know that, you know, on, on your McIlvaney commentary, you know, on a weekly basis, you talk about this and you guys, if you haven't listened to this, I highly recommend it because there's so much deep wisdom and, and understanding, but it still is rapidly changing week after week. The conversation is so deeply different. So how would you say, an investor, you know, today in this landscape, you know, acts appropriately towards building generational wealth and, and building a portfolio that can serve them and their interests for the future. You know, Tyler, if you were going to a doctor and um, you, you had questions or concerns or problems to solve, um, you would go to a specialist and that specialist you trust because they have experience, they have education. Um, they may have seen, you know, 50 or 100 or 1,000 of uh, the, 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 the presenting issues that you want to, uh, to discuss with them. And in, that's the way you engage is, is going to an expert that has expertise, um, that has context, that has perspective. And I think if, if an investor wants to sort of duplicate that in the world of, of, of money, you can create your own perspective by digging into history and saying, right, what, are the, what are the cycles involved here? And, and what were the variables that were driving those cycles? So if you're talking about real estate cycles, you need to understand something about demographics and supply and demand. You need to understand uh, something about interest rates and the cost of capital. And, and as you dig into those particular areas, you're giving yourself perspective. And then when you see something occur in the news or, or, or an event that is, is confounding, you're then operating within the context of, of um, again, where are we at in these cycles? What does this mean in light of all that we do know? Lots of things that you don't know, um, but if you sort of stack the deck in your favor by lining out the things that you do know. So, uh, What's the history of it? You know, when we, when we are interested in understanding um, the oil markets, for instance, um, we'll have on the program somebody who is, is a historian in Middle Eastern history. And why? Because we, we want to understand a thousand years of what brought us to this moment, not just yesterday and today 
and you know a very short or maybe too short of of, of a context. So I I think um, investing is one of those places where, frankly, the the I think it's sort of the last bastion for um, a person who has um, general interests. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of like, um, um, you know, a, a curriculum at a, at a, at a, at a Dartmouth or um, uh, a Columbia, they have a core curriculum where they require you to read literature in history. Even if you're going to be a doctor and study medicine, you have to know something about everything. And being a generalist, to me, investing is, is, is the bastion for generalists. It's a great place to be because you need the context. You need to know public policy. You need to know international relations. You need to know the oil markets. And, you know, last week uh, I was on with Neil Cavuto on Monday as the price of oil is slipping below $40 or two negative $40 a barrel. And, you know, those are really amazing events in, in, in sort of a singular moment in time. Um, but I think you begin to understand them when you broaden your horizons and think not just in terms of, okay, I want to be the real estate guy. So I'm going to study real estate. If you want to be really good at real estate, you're going to understand something about psychology. You can understand something about demographics. You can understand something about the natural appeal of a particular environment. I mean, there's just a lot of things. And I, I think that's where a hunger to learn gives you an edge. Are you someone who's seriously looking to elevate your life, your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal opportunities, your access to opportunities, your network this year? Well, if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com because I'm currently opening up a few coaching spots for people like you who want to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be and really you know, expand that beyond your wildest dreams and explode your business, explode your deal opportunities, explode your vision for what you're looking to create. If that's you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I really have to tell you that this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive. They're committed. They're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to get to where they want to be and to live a life without limits, to elevate to a life without limits, which is really what we're all about on this show. If that is you, again, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that, uh, you know, Charlie Munger mentions so frequently is that to be a successful investor in his capacity is to be multidisciplinary, to understand his own psychology, to understand history, to understand human behavior trends in so many different ways. So you're not narrowly focused and you're missing the big picture. One book that I read years ago that you may have read as well is The Ascent of Money. And I find it to have been yeah. so fascinating in just the history of currency and the history of value exchange. And I know that's something that you are so uh, deeply in tuned to and, and what that concept means. And one, it's, it's just so top of mind for me today because I look at you know, the marketplace and I see what the Fed has been doing in terms of printing so much money and injecting so much stimulus into the system. You know, it, it's going to be very interesting to see what the trans transgression of currency ends up being in the future. So I'd be curious, how do you use that sort of historical understanding and the historical conceptual knowledge of the transfer of value through currency and how are you acting appropriately today? 
Um, so first of all, Niall Ferguson's book is a, is a really good read. Um, would encourage anyone who's listening to, to get a copy of it because again, it's something that gives you some perspective on what money has been, um, both in the form of credit, in the form of just a paper or fiat um, money, or what it has been through much of history is gold, some tangible asset that's difficult to get has uh, or is associated with an intrinsic value. Um, you, you can measure the, the, the labor it involved to get it. Um, it's difficult. So um, when we look at the current environment and see the Fed, um, Federal Reserve, U.S. Central Bank, as well as other central banks, Bank of Japan, uh, the European Central Bank, uh, the People's Bank of China, they're all doing something similar. And it's, it's I think, for the same reasons. We, we have this mountain of debt uh, in, in the system, about 350-something, uh, $54, 56000000000000 trillion in global debt. And you have to have economic growth to keep up with the interest and principal payments on that amount of debt. It's, it's over 300% of global GDP, and that's not healthy. Um, so when the, the world economy or a domestic economy begins to slip in terms of its growth, they begin to panic because they know it's difficult to service the debt, um, and, and they need economic growth to do that. Um, so desperate times call for desperate measures. And that's what you see them doing is pulling out the stops, um, putting in trillions of dollars that didn't exist yesterday, last week, six months ago into the system to try to get things back to normal. And it's just to kind of grease the gears of the economy. Um, and, and that's, that's understandable from their perspective. And it's, and it's not a stupid decision, but it is a decision that comes with consequences um, for instance, you know, if you take a, uh, a shot of whiskey and see it in a shot glass, you, you can say that's pretty potent. But if I begin to mix that into a bathtub full of water, you can't hardly tell if there's any whiskey involved. And I, I think currency is, is similar that way. Quantity um, changes its, its efficacy. Quantity changes its potency. And the more that's there, the more it takes to buy stuff. So the fact that trillions are being created by the global central bank community does have an impact. You might say, well, oh, that'll be positive for asset prices. It may, and it may not. I mean, we'll have to see. Um, that was their desire coming out of the global financial crisis. That's why they were doing quantitative easing one, quantitative easing two, quantitative easing three. You had TARP and TALF and all these various programs to stimulate economic growth. Um, and actually, one of the side consequences, or you could argue benefits, um, was that you saw asset prices skyrocket coming out of the global financial crisis. Um, but it also emboldens speculators um, when asset prices are moving higher. They just assume that's the norm. Prices are always going higher. And um, not a lot of discipline uh, involved. Uh, not a lot of careful calculation involved in, and I think that's where big risks begin to be taken. Um, and big risks sometimes come with big consequences. I, I frankly would look at this whole context and say, there's a backdrop here, which is much bigger than COVID-19. Um, it's the credit markets in the United States and globally, which have expanded um, to the point where, we now have an unhealthy dependence 
on the credit markets expanding. And, and so it's a weird thing. And it was never this way prior to the existence of the gold standard. Um, growth was limited. Um, so maybe philosophically you don't like that idea. But growth was limited. And, and you know, there was also a context where so were the promises that politicians could make. Um, you had a limited amount of revenue. There were a limited number of promises you could make with that revenue, tax revenue. Um, and so the world was a series of small booms and small busts under the gold standard, right? Now we can create unlimited credit with no tie to a tangible asset in our money system. And you have these massive booms and it invites massive busts, but it also invites hampering or tinkering to prevent it. So now you have the PhDs, PhD economists of the world trying to prevent what is a natural cycle of boom and bust. Under the gold standard, boom, bust all the time, just micro. Every three to five years, boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. But nobody was really ever, we, we weren't worried about like the obliteration of the financial universe. And you know what, that's what we were afraid of with the global financial crisis back in 2008 and 2009. And I think that's still in the cards now, because, because we still have the mountain of debt. Uh, we've seen central bank uh, obligations expand like $40 trillion since the global financial crisis. They're actually in a, in a precarious place. It used to be, you know, we, we thought of Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and AIG and these institutions who had taken too much risk, and they were the ones who were going to pay the price. Guess who's taken all the risk to maintain a sense of normalcy on, on this cycle? It's the central banks. Which, which, which is really, this gets to the heart of the issue. If you have a credibility issue, it's not going to be with the executives at a corporation like AIG, Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns. This time, legitimacy and confidence is connected to the, the very top. It's government. It's government debt. It's government fiat paper. It's our, our currency. And God forbid we have those things called into question. Right. Because now you're talking about uh, an inability to for unquote performance, what they did in 2008, 2009. I'm not sure they can do again. Um, so I, I can go on and on about this, but I think the key thing and I think if you want supporting evidence for why COVID-19 is really just something that sort of pricked the, the, the credit bubble. Look at Jerome Powell's actions taken in September of 2019. Right. So he went through several months of tightening credit. He was raising interest rates through the, the summer months into the fall. And we had a president who was howling about it, thought he was the biggest idiot in the world. Why are you raising rates? We should be lowering rates. Europe's lowering rates. We should lower rates. Everybody should lower rates and even take them to zero or negative. We get to September and Jerome Powell looks into the financial abyss. We begin to see dislocations. You could look at the credit default swaps for um, JP Morgan, for Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley, for Goldman Sachs. There was growing concern that you could see a collapse of a number of your major Wall Street firms. This is September of 2019. And he's like, he comes out with a prepared script and he says, we're, we're moving back the other direction. We're lowering rates. We're doing this. We're doing that. We were in motion because there was chaos in the internal uh, layers of the financial markets in September, right? Now they have carte blanche to do whatever they want. They can write big checks because everybody's afraid of dying. 
<laughs> but but they needed to write big checks back then, and it was politically contentious because we were coming into an election year. So if Jerome Powell saves the system, did he just did he just give uh, you know did, did he ensure that um, Trump was going to be the next president for another four years? So it's it's a it's a tough position to be in. He knows what he needs to do because we're on a, on a financial precipice. And he doesn't doesn't really have any cover. It looks like political favoritism or something else. Now you've got all the central banks of the world writing big checks, um, and and it's because there's there's major problems within the system. Sorry, I, I love it. I I love diving into your mind because it's a beautiful mind, and there's so much wisdom there. But it's it almost seems like there's a level of addiction um, to debt, you know, in the financial system now. That's it's almost something that you can't stop. It can never be stopped. And so what is the, what is the potential turning point and how does that impact main street investors? Yeah. You know, I asked a question. Um, we were both at the best ever conference in December um, and uh, a real estate conference. And one of the questions I asked in, in, a, in a panel discussion, uh, there was a number of investors at the front. I said, how does your business model work if the liquidity dries up? And everybody answered very honestly, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. But I think that's why I'm going to do as much business right now as I possibly can, because I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, sure enough, liquidity started to dry up January, February, March. Right. And, you know, if you can't roll over your debt, if you don't have access to credit, if you're too leveraged and I mean, let's say you're running a portfolio. There was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today. You're running a portfolio of, of rentals and you've got them listed on Airbnb what just happened to you? If you own those properties outright, if you have no debt, you have no worries. You know, you'll have enough, you know, scratch here and there to, to, to make payments on, on your real estate taxes and things like that. But if you're leveraged to the hilt, the, the question is how long can you survive? Right? So margin is, is a concept that I think is worth, sitting on it and, and sort of saying, what kind of margin do I have? What kind of cushion it would be another word for that. What kind of cushion do I have in various areas of my life? If something doesn't go perfectly right, how can I, how can I get through that? You know, and, and, and this applies to a marriage relationship. It applies to when you're raising kids. Uh, it applies to uh, the kind of social capital you want to have in a business with your employees. If you make a mistake, is there mass flight from your company or is there enough social capital built in? Have you built margin in that you can ride out a storm? And, and if you're at the edge, right? If you're always at the edge, maximizing, 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 and then some variable changes, you're done. And that's, that's the problem with an addiction to debt is, is, you know, you, you're getting more than you would otherwise, you know, look at your returns on investment uh, on a leveraged real estate portfolio versus a non-leveraged real estate portfolio. It's one of the reasons why everyone loves real estate, but you have to, you have to know yourself. You have to know how to tame it down, take it down a notch and say, yeah, we could maximize our returns if, but are you keeping in mind how much margin you need for both the good days and the bad days? Because the business cycle is constantly doing something and there's a surprise all the time. 
And if, if it's not external, maybe it's internal. You know, I, I know some folks who've had to get out of business because they've developed health issues and they were very well prepared from a balance sheet perspective, but internally, literally their bodies are breaking down. Internal things can come up. External things can come up. How much margin do you have? If the system has too much debt, I will say this, we just don't have that much margin. We don't have that much. And so what a system will do, like a, you know, take the United States or um, the European Union, when you don't have the capital, but you do have a printing press, then you can fill the gaps, right? Now you and I don't have a printing press. <laughs> Maybe you do. Not I won't yet, tell no. you about mine, even though <laughs> I did. Um, you can go to jail for them. Yeah. Um, so, so a, a nation has a way of dealing with that stress in ways that individuals and municipalities can't. Um, and that's what we're tempting fate with right now. Back to our earlier conversation. Um, with too much debt, you don't have very many options for how to solve it. You can default on your debt. Uh, in the case of a nation, you can nationalize assets. You can print your way out of it. And what they're beginning to experiment is, is a double approach where on the one hand you use inflation, maybe understated a little bit, but run a rate of inflation above your growth rate and then keep interest rates suppressed. Use the Fed balance sheet or central bank balance sheet to buy bonds and keep interest rates low. So interest rates are low, inflation is high or higher than your, your interest rate. And, and your growth rate, you, you would, you'd, you'd, like to, you'd like to see it grow as much as you can. But there's two, two variables in there that allow for them to fill gaps and it's out of your pocket and mine. Inflation is a, is a form of taxation and financial repression, which is the fancy words that they put to lowering interest rates to zero or negative. That's another way of, that the, the Chinese did this years ago to recapitalize their banking system. We're doing it now because we saw this, the Scandinavian countries and European countries um, have some degree of success with it over the last couple of years. Now, success it never stimulated economic growth, so it really wasn't a success, but it kept them from failure. And if you look at current central bank policies, you got to understand these are life support measures. This is not like, oh, okay, well, COVID's going to pass and, and everything's going to be the central banks have communicated to you that the financial world is on life support. You don't take interest rates to zero. You don't spend trillions of dollars. This, this is not, this is not normal. This is not normal. Right. And that's why I'm like, where does this even go from here? You know, because it's on life support and it almost seems like it's going to require continued life support until something absolutely beyond drastic happens. You know, can the entire financial system collapse to a certain point and, you know, will everyone be forced to take a different direction? I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, sometimes people like the dichotomy of are we going to have inflationary outcomes or deflationary outcomes? And because it's nice to think in sort of neat categories. Um, I think what we end up with, because there's so much excess in the financial system, is a combination of deflation and inflation, where you have certain assets that just collapse. Um, you know, so take, for instance, the kind of liabilities that the city of Chicago has. You know, I mean, and they're going to tack on another $14 billion through, through payroll expenses and things like that in the next year. So they're, they're in a deficit. They've got a, a huge 
hole they have to fill and they don't have the revenues to fill it. Um, why wouldn't you see bankruptcy in a place like Chicago or in Illinois? They don't have a printing press, right? So, so there could be a deflation event which impacts municipal bonds, which doesn't impact treasuries because you're dealing with a difference in resources. You, you, you can't solve the problem and fill the hole over there, but you can fill the hole over here. Maybe there's consequences to it, but at least there's not going to be deflation, right? Or a collapse in, in the value of that asset. Um, that's, that's the, we're going to have a mixed bag. And I think the next couple of years are going to be very interesting as, as we sort out kind of um, some assets are going to do really well. Some assets are not going to do really well. Um, I think gold and silver are going to do incredibly well in, in the years ahead uh, in part because of the economic uh, challenges and the financial market frailties, but also because we are, are changing relationships with our, our former allies and partners all around the world, whether it's in the Middle East or, you know, great bilateral trade agreement, which we've had more or less for 48 years with China. That's not real strong right now. Part of its trade war. Now we're poking sticks at each other over COVID and, and who's to blame for bringing this to our doorstep. Um, that, that we've got geopolitical issues, which add to the financial and the economic, and it makes, gold an asset that I think is, is fundamental, should be fundamental to everyone's portfolio. Um, own some stocks, own some bonds, own some real estate. If you don't own gold, just to quote Ray Dalio, um, he runs the largest hedge fund in the world. If you don't own gold, you don't understand history and you don't understand economics. Absolutely. And if you want to learn more about how you can get involved in owning gold and silver, obviously you want to uh, look up David and his company and we'll certainly put links into the show notes uh, how you do that. But, but David, I want to switch gears a little bit because, you know, one of the things that I really admire about your thinking is that you can apply your thinking towards economics and you can also apply it towards your own personal life and your own sort of personal leadership philosophies as well as how you lead your family. And, you know, a book that you wrote, The Intentional Legacy, which I've got here for the YouTube uh, viewers, if you uh, want to check that out, it's an amazing book. But talk to me, what do you mean by being intentional with your legacy? And also, why is leaving a legacy important to you? Well, let's start with legacy being um, a given. We're all going to leave a legacy. Um, some of us won't be very proud of that legacy, and some of us will be very proud of that legacy. Um, so the, 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 the idea of intentionality applied to legacy is really asking a question, what do you want it to look like? And, and, and back to an earlier conversation point, if you're taking an accounting of all that you're working with, all of your assets and all of your liabilities, and maybe that's a financial balance sheet, maybe that's uh, an intellectual balance sheet, maybe it's a, an emotional balance sheet, um, you know, do a full accounting of who you are and what you have and, and then say, well, where do I want to be? And it's really easy when it comes to money to say, well, I just want more or, you know, to say a million dollars or $10 million or a billion dollars. You know, these, these are, these are numbers that you can pick, right? And it's easiest to do that. And guess what? You get a monthly statement or you can, you know, manage a PL or a balance sheet and actually say, okay, well, actually I'm making progress there. I think that people neglect the other assets and liabilities that they're dealing with, which are resources that they have to manage and will have a direct bearing on the quality of the legacy that they leave, but they don't manage them because they don't get a statement. 
you know, when, when you, like I've got three boys, how do I measure loyalty and, 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 uh, you know, let's just take that as an example. How do you measure loyalty between boys? You know, and, and I think they're, they're arguing about Legos today. They're fighting about this or that. Like it just, it just feels like we're living in a negative balance sometimes. Right. Like where's the positive? Are they going to be generous and kind? And they are, they are, they're good kids. Um, but there's times where you go, I don't know what to do with this. Right. And, and, and there, there has to be a choice. You have to make a decision. How do you want to curate the things in your life, the relationships in your life, such that positive outcomes can occur? Right. So a practical example would be, um, uh, I'll give you two examples. One would be, you know, leaving for a business trip, uh, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. A little daughter runs up and grabs hold of my leg, gives me a hug and says, uh, there's a backstory to this, which I'll get to. She says, dad, I'm not going to have honey until you get home. Okay, so we get up every morning. We get up every morning. And the first thing I do is, is I carry her downstairs and she sits on the countertop and we have a spoonful of honey. We have five minutes. The five minutes to talk. We have five minutes that she can tell me about her dreams, uh, how she slept, what she's going to do that day. And it's five minutes, right? So, you know, w- what I discovered is that a spoonful of honey and five minutes is for her how you discover solidarity. She, she's, she's not, I mean, and it's a big concept. If I sat down with her and said, okay, today, honey, we're going to learn about solidarity. Now, I want you to take notes. <laughs> this is the most important conversation you're ever going to have. That doesn't compute, but a spoonful of honey computes. And, 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 a, and a relational change occurs because of five minutes a day. Every one of us has five minutes a day to have a spoonful of honey. Tuesdays, Mary Catherine, this is my wife. Um, we have a date night. Done that for years. And this is a way that we build in margin into our relationship. Um, it's important. I, I am, I am not always and not even rarely perfect. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a guy, right? So, you know, dealing with normal human imperfections, my wife has to deal with that. And I think it makes sense to invest in the relationship, right? So I want to build up assets and liabilities. I want to build up my assets and reduce my liabilities through time, relationally, intellectually, emotionally. And this to me is a series of choices that add up to legacy. I would define legacy as the sum total of the decisions that you're making in life. And that reflects your values and the things that mean most to you. It's not a bunch of money that you leave at the end of your life. It's, it's the way that you're making decisions today. What you say yes to what you say no to, you are defining your legacy in those things. Just make sure that you've looked at all the categories and not put so much emphasis on money and tangible assets that you forget all of the other intangible things that need attention and relationships are right at, right at the core of that. Yeah. And, and really the theme of our conversation in so many ways has been about building margin, not only in your thinking, in your life, you know, economically, so on and so forth. But one of the things that I understand about you is that you also like to build a margin in your own psychology in terms of how you look at fear and the same as how you lead others and how they look at fear. And actually, it's really interesting on your website. I, I watched your video where you 
are teaching your your son about fear and how to live with fear. Um, so would you talk about that a little bit and what really that concept means to you? Yeah, sure. Um, so we live in Colorado and, and it's not uncommon, um, you know, living in the mountains to take interest in whether it's you know, mountain biking or skiing or rock climbing or whatnot. And so we do as a family, that's, that's one of the things that we do is, is get outdoors and stay active. And you know, early on taking my kids climbing there, there was a discussion about how you, you can, you can experience fear and panic um, and your body can shut down and everything that you need access to simply goes away. And, and then that's, that's a, it's a, that's a biological, a physical biological function where when you are in the context of fear and panic, um, you, you, your body brings all the blood to the core, um, you know, and, and your blood pressure spikes and your ability to make good decisions goes down. When you're climbing, you actually can lose the feelings in your fingers and toes and it's just, you just start to panic, right? So it's a problem that ends up feeding on itself. What we tried to do is, is frame rock climbing like, like a chess game. These are just problems to solve. This is just a challenge. You got to figure out what the right way to solve this problem is. And, and somehow when you frame things as a challenge, all of a sudden the natural fear that all of us experience, it's, it's different. You don't lose your, your tactile functionality. You, you don't lose the ability to continue to problem solve and process information. Um, and so challenge, see, seeing things as a challenge instead of a threat um, is, is um, it's just kind of a part of our, our, our family conversation. I took my son who's now 11. I took him climbing up a pretty tall tower, maybe 300 foot tower um, when he was eight. And it was, it was a great, um, it was a great experience for both of us. Um, I think internally I was processing more than he was in, he was processing for him. It was just a big adventure. Um, but there is a trust relationship that we have and we've, we've been climbing for three or four years before that. So, you know, th there was some context to it. Um, but did he experience fear? Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you feel the exposure of, of being up 30 feet, and, and, and looking down and you can feel it when you're up 200, 300 feet. Um, it could be a thousand or five, it doesn't matter anymore. It's just, it's something inside of you. Right. And, um, I, I hope that my kids engage rock climbing the way they do management of a portfolio where they see a challenge and not a threat where they're not like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose it all because I just lost 10%, but they can stay engaged right? And I think there is cross application here because so much in life we experience and is it a threat or is it a challenge? And are you engaged in problem solving or are you just freaking out? And, and, and I, I just know that life is going to be full of surprises, not necessarily all good ones for them and a part of their life preparation. And hopefully part of the legacy that we leave for them is, is teaching them how to deal with stuff. My wife was diagnosed with cancer when, when we were in our fourth year of marriage. Um, I talk about that in, in the book and um, not pleasant. Not something that I would, I would wish on anybody. On the other hand, um, it was probably one of the most critical experiences in our relationship in terms of deepening our love for each other in terms of, uh, you know, think about this. You, you, you talk Tyler about taking things to the next level. Sometimes we don't like the things 
that take things to the next level. You know, if for someone who's physically fit, you know that you actually have to break down muscle tissue to take things to the next level. You actually have to see damage done for good to come of it and for you to experience strength on the other side. And I'll tell you, that was the way uh, for Mary Catherine and I, where we, I mean, I, again, I, I, I wouldn't want to do it again, but I wouldn't want to not have what we have today on the other side of it. Um, it's rich. It's beautiful. Um, it was, it was hard fought. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely took things to the next level. Yeah. Well, and you, um, I love how you, you brought the concept of dealing with fear while climbing a mountain also to how does that impact you when you're thinking about, Oh, I just lost 10% in my portfolio. And how does that impact me? You know, is it the same sort of visceral response? And I love just how you approach life in terms of training and training yourself towards being prepared for any moment and the uncertainty. And of course the devastation of learning that, you know, a loved one has cancer or anything totally, des- you know, really disastrous, uh, such as that kind of news. So talk to me, how else are you really investing in yourself to train yourself uh, for future disappointment and then also preparing yourself to capture future opportunities? Well, I'll tell you, the, the big disappointment this year tied to COVID-19, um, what's the day today? 29th? Yeah, 29th, yep. Two days from now, I was supposed to be um, competing in my first full Ironman. And the race was canceled. You know, I, I trained, I got all the training in. Um, and I think this is, I think if, if I, actually I've been, you know, for the last four or five weeks, um, Mary Catherine will tell you, I've, I've been, I've been a little, little bummed about that because yeah, you work hard for something and then it doesn't materialize. I mean, really work hard. Um, yeah. Two a day exercises, you know, probably an extra 15 hours a week. And to accommodate family life and running two businesses, that means that I'm up early and up late. So <laughs> it's just burning the candle at both ends. Um, but I, you know, reflecting on that, um, one training in the first place is, is for me, um, bringing an element of control into a world that has no control. We live with an illusion of control, um, in all the things that we do business outcomes. We, we assume more about the positive outcomes that are ahead of us. Um, and, and actually we have no control. With no control over hardly anything in life. Um, but I'll tell you, in managing business and managing stress in the context of, I'd say, 40, 50 employees, um, and we've gone through, you know, the gold market, if, if you look at how well the stock market has done in recent years, generally speaking, gold does not do well when stocks are going through the roof. Uh, so we've had, we've had some challenges in our business. Having something routine on the schedule is so important for my brain space. You know, I can't tell you what sales are going to be this, this month or if we're going to make any money on, on our wealth management team this month or today or this week, although I look at the P&L and we manage it that closely. Um, but I can tell you that I swam this morning and it was a good swim. It's great. And I, 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 this may seem silly, but I, there's, there's something about having a guaranteed win starting the day with a, a positive accomplishment that is really good for my emotional balance and brain chemistry. Um, 
And I can tell you in the last five, six weeks, I haven't done much exercise at all. And I can tell you, even though gold is, is, is near all-time highs, we're, we're, we're within 15% of all-time highs in U.S. dollar terms. Our business has picked up dramatically. Um, something is different and something is off, right? So those predictable things that we do in life, I think, have a, a cumulative value. So think about if you said to yourself, I want to be a writer and I'm just going to take time to write one page a day, right? That consistent dedication. It doesn't have to be exercise. It may be some other discipline, but you will accomplish a lot more if you just take off like the ant. There's so much to learn from the ant versus the grasshopper. Just move a stone, one stone at a time. You look back over 20, 30 years, you think to yourself, a big pile of rocks. That's a big pile of rocks. And that to me, you know, there is some uncertainty on the horizon from a financial standpoint, an economic standpoint. There's so many good things that you can be doing um, for yourself, for your headspace, for your body, for your mind, for your heart, that just tie to those little decisions, whether it's a spoonful of honey a day or getting to the pool every day or writing a page a day. And, and to me, that fights against victimhood, that fights against this sense of, you know, the world is against me or uh, the market's collapsing on top of me. Like there's still these little victories and I think it's really important to, 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 to seed your life with those little victories. You can do it daily. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is no pun intended. This is gold. Okay. Uh, this is amazing. And I really appreciate you sharing that because there are so many ways that we can control the controllables, right? You know, it's how, how do you look at it? How do you respond? How do you, you know, develop your own habits? How do you approach your day outside of the uncertainties? Because I know many of the people listening have been shaking their heads like up and down. Like, yeah, I, I know exactly what he means. I can count on my own habits. I can count on my own routines. I can count on how I treat people and how I treat myself. So uh, there's just so much wisdom there, David, and I really appreciate that. I want to be respectful of your time and uh, transition into our uh, rapid fire section. We actually call it the the rare air questionnaire. And what it's all about is it's all about, you know, expanding our limits and, you know, pushing our boundaries and putting ourselves into a little bit of discomfort and, and becoming the highest version of ourselves, which is what Elevate is all about. And you're certainly all about what we talk about here on Elevate, David. So uh, I, I think this is going to be a tough question for you because of how well read you are. But I'd love to know if you were to narrow it down, call it maybe three of the most impactful books that you've ever read, what would those be? Um, three most impactful books. Feel um, free to break the rule if you need to expand it beyond three. Uh, but again, I knew it would be a tough, tough question for you. Um, I think one of the, one of the books is by Jean Vanier. Um, and if I remember the, the title correctly, Becoming Human. And, um, it's a, it's a very compassionate look at what it means to be human and, and, and what it means to set sort of an internal trajectory, both emotional and spiritual. Um, I think um, from from a a book that I a book that I've read not every year but I I will I will go back to it year after year is a book by G.K. Chesterton um, called Orthodoxy. Um, 
Chesterton, there's a couple of reasons to, to read anything Chesterton. If, if you're not in love with the English language, reading him, you will become uh, enamored with it. It's, it's just, he, he has wit and wisdom and a turn of phrase like no one else. Um, you know, these, these were written a hundred years ago and you could just, you can feel the rhythm. Um, not like a, uh, not like a Shakespearean iambic pentameter, but it, there's just, there's something to it that is, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. If you just wanted to study it from the standpoint of rhetoric to become a better communicator, you, you could read Chesterton's orthodoxy, but I think he also gets to, again, kind of the heart of what are we doing all this for? Um, what is this about? Um, he gets, he gets to the meaning question. Um, a third book. Um, gosh, I'll tell you, there's, there's a book that's really challenged my thinking on economics. And uh, it was an ambitious project put together by the guy who at age 23 was um, tapped to be the financial advisor to Vaclav Havel. Vaclav Havel is a playwright. Um, he's an artist, but he was democratically elected, the first democratically elected president of Czechoslovakia at the end of the Cold War, uh, led what was called the Velvet Revolution, um, which was a, a peaceful revolution, ended communism in Czechoslovakia. And Vaclav Havel asked Tomas Sedlicek to be his financial advisor. So you've got this young 23-year-old who grew up in communism um, who has to do something different, right? And what would you advise? Well, I would advise, and all he knows, all of his education is socialist, communist um, rhetoric and, 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 and the, you know, the rules of the road, so to say. He wrote a book a few years ago called The Economics of Good and Evil. The Economics of Good and Evil. And it's fantastic. It is fantastic. I've had him on a program before, so if you want to go back to our archives, um, we've got 13 years of weekly podcasts, and there's, there's, there's some good stuff to, to mine in there. I would look for the, the Sedlicek. It's, how do you spell it? Uh, let me look at my bookshelf. S-E-C, no, I'm sorry. S-E-D-L-A-C-E-K, Tomas Sedlicek, Economics of Good and Evil. Uh, but I, I would say this, back to, um, back to a comment earlier, the three most important books are going to be different for each person. Because yeah. you, could, you could pick up any one of those three books and they could be completely dry and lifeless to you today. What if, what if five years from now you're in a different state of mind, asking different questions, your curiosity is peaked for different reasons, and now one of those three books is a life changer. Um, I, I think we, we have to maintain sensitivity to, again, kind of where we're at and the questions we're trying to solve. Um, so those are books that have been impactful to me. Um, if you happen to pick them up, um, <laughs> give them some time. If it's not today, then it means something to you. Maybe tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I know for sure myself, you know, there's times where I read a book and it, it doesn't impact me at all and I'll pick it up again and it totally changes my life. So 
you know, maybe there's an opportunity for the listener to ask that themselves is, you know, what is the potential for this read to impact my thinking and to impact the way that I approach my life? And one of the things that I love that you do, just while we just stay on the topic for books, just just for a brief moment here, I love how you find and seek your curiosity through seeking bibliographies of certain books to continue your own learning, continue your own understanding. So maybe that's more of a serve servitude for the guest and for the listener here is to say, seek your own curiosity to find the books that are going to be impactful for your life. And um, the other thing too, that I just wanted to touch on just briefly while we're still on the concept of books is building your own family library. Um, talk to me about that and how you approach that, that, that concept. Yeah. Now some of your listeners are going to think this is just flat kooky because you know, we live in a digital age and you can put how many books on um, an iPad or Kindle, why would you want a physical library? Um, there's a couple of reasons why. Um, number one, when you engage with a book and begin to put your thoughts into the margins of the book, you're having conversations with someone, you know, just imagine if you could have a conversation with Theodore Roosevelt, or you could have a conversation with Winston Churchill, what would it be? If you could have a conversation with Margaret Thatcher or Mikhail Gorbachev or, you know, just pick anyone from history. If you want to have a conversation with Plato, that conversation occurs in the margins and the benefit that you give to yourself in the future and your family is that they get to be a part of your conversation with that author, right? So marginalia is a part of the reason why I think physical books, at least in my, our world, my world will, will never be passe. Um, and, and again, I, maybe because my kids are not interested in that. I don't, I don't know. I know they're naturally inclined more towards video games and books. So, <laughs> but I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for it. Um, the other thing about books is think about the collection of knowledge that you have access to today that in periods in the past you didn't. You, you, can, you can buy used books for anywhere from three to six dollars and I mean, we're talking about not, not just like, you know, paperback, throwaway, you know, dime store novel type books, but important books that have been, re, you know, cycled through the public library system. They're being tossed out, whatever else. You can buy them for 3 to $6. You can build a library of a thousand books for virtually nothing. I mean, it, it, this is, it, think about what people have done to elevate a piece of paper on a wall, a degree that you get from an institution that, you know, I was just talking to a friend who, who's, who's accepted to Boston College this next year, um, son of a friend of ours. Um, the all-in cost is $70,000 a year. I didn't want to tell him that for $70,000, he could buy more books at 3 to $6 than he could read in a lifetime and, and would be better served, would be better served. If he could bring the discipline of learning and harnesses curiosity, he would be better served spending $70,000 once than $70,000 four years in a row for a piece of paper to hang on the wall. So true. What is education? Is it a place that you go? I mean, this is, this is, 
we have we have conceptions of things that I think this this is where I think I think books are a value play. I mean, I look I look at having everything tied to the digital universe and think to myself, okay, if we had a solar flare or an EMP or something that wiped out the triple or quadruple redundant servers that Google has, and we can no longer get our information by asking Siri a question or ter- putting it into a search engine. What if we had to do our own research? I mean, and I just, I, you know, I'm, I'm building a library now called the library of mistakes. And it's, it's it, I, in the United States, in North America, it will be the finest research library for economics and finance. Um, a friend of mine in Edinburgh, Scotland, started this and, and, and called his library the Library of Mistakes. He said he would license the name to me. Um, but I, I, I mean, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the fact that I can build a library. The building itself is going to cost 10 times what the books will. <laughs> but the value is in the books. The value is in the books. I tell my kids all the time, I said, if I leave you 10 ounces of gold when I die or 1,000 ounces of gold, that has no value compared to the treasure which you will find in one of these books because there's truths in these books which may change your life, may change your family, and it may change the world. You may come across an insight that literally recalibrates everything, everything. And that's, that's worth more than all the money that Midas could ever collect. That's so true. And I just really admire your love for learning and your love for reading because I share it in so many different ways. And, and I wanted to just make a mention of a, a quote that I, I heard recently, and I'm sure you've heard it yourself, but it's, you know, don't let education get in the way of your learning. And, uh, you know, it reminds me of what you were talking about in terms of the cost of perhaps a, a higher education versus what may be a higher learning that you can really accomplish through your own curiosity and through your own study yourself. So I just think there's so much value in what you're saying. David, what's the biggest way besides what we've talked about today that you elevate your life on a daily basis? Um, Elevate my life on a daily basis. Um, Let me relate this to a quote from a guy by the name of Larry Burkett. He's, he's no longer alive. Um, but he, he used to say everything that you've been given in life is not just for you. And so when you think about the wealth that you're creating or why you're doing what you're doing, um, recognize that there is a larger purpose. Um, and you know, if you want a meaningful existence, you can't just serve yourself. You can't just serve yourself. Um, and I, I hope this isn't offensive. I'll just be honest. One of the, you asked the question, um, the most transformational thing I think I do every day is get together with my family at breakfast and we spend about 10 minutes reading the Bible together. And, you know, it's a reminder that this is not just about you. Um, it's a reminder that brothers should love each other, not beat the crap out of each other all the time. It's a reminder that you don't always have to be selfish. In fact, the more selfish you are, the more isolated and alone you'll end up being in your adult years. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a very healthy antidote to um, the things that we, that come easy to us, whether it's um, discontentment or selfishness or whatnot. Um, I find many of the truths in scripture to be, um, 
a very healthy antidote. So it brings me that back to that Larry Burkett quote, which is everything that you have in life, it's not just for you. And that's our daily reorientation. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't know you that well, Tyler, I'll just, this is more candor than you're probably asking for. Um, as much as that was a discipline, when, when the Ironman race was canceled, I did go into a bit of a funk and we quit getting together for breakfast in the morning. My bad, but my daily routines of waking up early to exercise and then getting home and before breakfast, getting everyone awake, bringing some coffee to Mary Catherine, sitting down and spending a couple of minutes in scripture with the kids, talking to them and then heading out the door for the office. Everything was off because the first thing was off. And my son came in one night, my wife and I were, were, were watching a movie. It was our date night. And, and he came in and he said, dad, when are we going to start that again? You've, you've been off. You're not yourself. And I realized Tyler, that for me to be my best self, I've, I've, there has to be some inputs. Um, and that's a really important input. It's a really important input. So much so that my 13 year old, in just a six week period where I dropped off that habit is like, this isn't working for me. It's not working for me. I need you back. We all need you back. And so I know that to be uh, my best Dave, I've got to tap into resources that go well beyond me. Um, and that's how I do it. Oh, that's, that's so well said. And by the way, I just want to make a mention, we may not know each other super well, but I want to make sure that we get to know each other super well, because I really admire you. And this has been such a fun conversation and so insightful in so many different ways. And what a great thing to highlight is that you can only pour into others cups, however much you can pour into yourself. So you've got to really prioritize your own growth and how you're showing up as a leader of your family, of the people that depend on you financially, of the people that depend on you spiritually or whatever it may be. What are you doing to show up for yourself so that you can continue to push that domino in the right direction for others that are important to you and leave that intentional legacy that, that you're so fond of, Dave? And, and uh, I've got you know just one, one final question for you. And I know that there's so many ways that you do this, but what would you say is the biggest way that you elevate others around you? I elevate others around me. Um, it's amazing how saying one kind thing to a person can transform their day. And I think gratitude and appreciation translated into words of affirmation um, goes so far, whether it's with uh, my wife, my kids, or uh, people at the office. Um, the, the other day, I, I, I couldn't, one of, one of my colleagues, I just said, you know, great job on that. And I, I mean, it was literally just a simple offhanded comment. And it was like his whole being froze. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, like, and all of a sudden, his reaction suggested to me, he needs, he needs more affirmation, Right that meant something to him. Yeah. So I'm the boss and I, I recognized it and, and, and I, and I, I gave him a pat on the back for it. Um, but it meant something. And I think sometimes we get so stuck in ourselves meeting our own needs. Um, we actually did this in our last family meeting last Wednesday night. 
we got together and we went around the circle and, and I, I, I said, I said, do you know what the needs are of your sister? Do you know what your mom's needs are? Do you know what my needs are? Because we're all very good at meeting our own needs or trying to get our needs met. And if you stop and think about what the needs of other people are, it's amazing what happens because there's a, there's a weird, this is, this is economics turned upside down. Take care of yourself and you don't always get to take care of yourself. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Take care of others and you'll find that you're always taking care of yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a weird, I don't know if that's a spiritual, I don't know what it is. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to convince the kids that if you recognize the needs of others and, and can, can meet them, meet them, um, you'll find that you actually don't have very many needs at all that need to be met. Um, and that's what I experienced in that office encounter. Um, and that's how I'd answer the question. I think if you can translate appreciation and gratitude into words of affirmation, um, you can see the, wor- the world around you blossom. Wow, there's just so much deep, profound wisdom uh, just emanating from who you are, David. Um, I just really appreciate you taking so much time. Uh, is there any parting thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd leave with Elevate Nation today? Uh, Tyler, you're onto something. I mean, I, I think I think you know, creating a conversation and inviting people into it and recognizing that what um, you're engaged with as a process of growth and transformation, um, both um, professional and personal. Um, I mean, that's, this is, I would just, I would suggest to anyone who's in your community, uh, this is really healthy, you know, for you to take an honest appraisal of who you are and where you want to be um, and, and see the complementary nature of, of personal and professional growth um, to recognize the complexity of the world within and try to solve some of the problems in terms of the complexity of the world out there. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, kudos to you. You're doing a great job. And thanks for asking some great questions some tough questions. And uh, I, I do look forward to getting to know you better too. Likewise. Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, definitely looking forward to the future and having more conversations with you. We'll have to have round two at some point here in the near future. Uh, I look forward to that. Um, But in the meantime, tell the listeners how they can learn more about you and what you do. Um, So probably the best way, I I think there's two resources that are real helpful. Uh, The weekly commentary, there's a couple of different URLs you can use to get there. Easiest is weeklycommentary.com weeklycommentary.com um that's that's a podcast we've been doing for 13 years every week and it's it's been uh, a huge part of of my own personal growth and development because it's a discipline i gotta show up every week and do it and prepare for it and and there's a lot of hours put into research to to, to get done what needs to get done whether it's you know talking to an author and reading his book or and uh, so I, you know, I appreciate your digging into to my book because I know what it takes to dig into a book and, and be able to engage an author substantively. So um, the weekly commentary is, is a great resource. If you're interested in gold specifically, we do another podcast. It's generally like a six to 10 minute uh, podcast every Thursday. So mine is out Wednesday. Thursday is... Uh, called Golden Rule Radio. And a couple of my colleagues put that together. It's great. It's just punchy. 
gets right to the point what's driving the gold market, supply and demand dynamics, some technicals. Are you considering buying or selling? If you're looking at the charts, what should you be looking for right now? Very actionable, very practical. Um, mine is definitely more, uh, again, going back to creating context and perspective for the decisions that we're making on the wealth management side. Um, uh, the, 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 my commentary is, is a little bit bigger picture. Um, those are two great resources. Those are two great resources. If people are interested, I'd say the last thing, um, we launched a program that allowed for, for savings, um, basically creating your own bank account, if you will, priced in gold or, or, or denominated in gold. Uh, it's a partnership with the Royal Canadian Mint and um, brilliant program. It's working really well. We've seen about a 1,200% increase um, last year to this year. It continues to ramp aggressively. Um, I think 1,000, 1,500 new accounts this month. Um, and it's just, it's continuing to explode in terms of interest because people want to own gold, but they want to own it easily and they want to be able to get out of it if they want to very quickly. So, you know, uh, vaulted.com, V-A-U-L-T-E-D, vaulted.com. That's a, that's a great resource too. If you're interested in just kind of dipping your toes in the gold market and you really don't know where to start, that's a great place to start. Yeah. And if you can't tell, you absolutely want to engage uh, further with what David's doing because there's so much deep thought put into what he does. And you absolutely want to engage with this content, learn more about what he's doing in terms of his companies. Uh, one thing I'll tell you is that if you go to McIlvaneyica.com slash elevate, you can actually download the complimentary market readiness worksheet, a simple step-by-step print-ready guide to help investors prepare their portfolio for mass market disruption, which, you know, we're, we're certainly experiencing in so many different ways. And, you know, this, this will allow investors to take advantage of markets without leaving themselves vulnerable to massive downturns. Uh, so you can also get a clear picture of your portfolio's positioning and, and it will allow you to create a stable platform for your own healthy financial future. So I just wanted to make a mention of that. Uh, that's McIlvaneyica.com slash elevate. So we'll put uh, links to everything in the show notes, of course. Um, but beyond that, uh, I just want to express my deepest gratitude uh, to you, David, and really to the listeners, because I think if you've listened this Indeed. far, I mean, you've really played full out and and I would imagine you've engaged deeply in this conversation. And I would hope that you've also taken notes because really it is about distilling this wisdom into actionable insights. You know, what are your top three distinctions now as a question that I, I like to pose because obviously there's many more than three distinctions that I have myself, but what can we do to take action now? And I think simplicity is, is certainly important. You don't want to overwhelm yourself, but taking action now is super important. And what can you do to share this with another friend? What can you do to share and teach this to someone else? Because as, as I say very often, you know, the teacher is who learns the most. The teacher is really who anchors in their own understanding. And really, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to pay it forward as well. So with that said, uh, David, man, this has been absolutely outstanding. Thank you, Tyler. I love being here with you and, and look forward to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. Elevate Nation, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a real estate investment firm formed by myself and my partner, Brian Flaherty, where we invest in multifamily real estate communities across the Southeast United States. If you'd like to learn more about our approach, our mission, our acquisition criteria, and how you can learn more about future opportunities, 
visit cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit tylerchesser.com.